X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news democracy. I'm Jeff Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Tuesday, November the 24th. Today, back in the day, November 24th, 1860, Henry Pittock absorbed ownership of the weekly Oregonian, now known as the Oregonian. Pittock began working at the paper in 1853 at age 17. In the following year, he was named partner in lieu of wages. And the following year, he was named partner instead of getting wages. At age 21, he had enough financial success to start Oregon's second paper mill, buy some land, a sheep ranch, and entire city blocks. His success eventually led to the construction of the historic Pittock Mansion in the West Hills. So to all the young journalists in debt from universities and struggling to get a byline, I don't know what you'd say to Henry Pittock today, except for nice house. Today, back in the day, November 24, 1971, D.B. Cooper disappeared. In the airspace between Seattle and Portland, Cooper hijacked a Boeing 727 and parachuted out in mid-flight. Neither he nor his remains were ever found. The FBI investigation now amounts to 60 volumes. Dan Cooper was the pseudonym of the man who purchased a plane ticket carrying $200,000 in ransom today worth over a million bucks. In 1980, a young boy found a cache of banknotes from the ransom along the banks of the Columbia River. No definitive conclusions about Cooper's true identity or whereabouts have ever been made. There have been a bunch of suspects and a bunch of theories. William Gossett was a Korean and Vietnam vet, a survivalist, and a parachutist. He told his sons and a local judge in San Diego that he had committed the 1971 skyjacking. His son Greg recalls Gossett having an unusual amount of money at Christmas in 1971, and Gossett's physical characteristics do match the descriptions. Galen Cook, who had been investigating the Cooper case for years, decided that Gossett was most likely D.B. Cooper. But the FBI says there's no evidence to link Gossett to the case, and he died in 2003. Robert Rackstraw was an early suspect in the case. A series of letters had been mailed to the FBI shortly after the hijacking, and one of them identified Rackstraw. He was a former Special Forces paratrooper, explosives expert, and a pilot with about 22 different aliases. He was eliminated as a suspect for the FBI in 1979. His elimination was controversial among the investigating agents, and he remained for many the most viable suspect in what remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in U.S. history. Filmmaker and author Thomas Colbert produced a documentary called D.B. Cooper Cased Closed for the History Channel. Rackstraw was approached by reporters in 2017, neither confirmed nor denied the information, told reporters to verify their facts. He passed away in 2019. Others from John List to Richard McCoy to Robert Richard Lepsey to Lynn Doyle Cooper have all been speculated as the possible D.B. Cooper. Only thing I'm sure about, wasn't me. The FBI suspended the investigation in July of 2016. Today we will have your Quick 6 News headlines and an interview with Ramsey Faruqi, founder of the Center for Study and Preservation of Palestine at PSU, Portland State University. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. The Trump administration continues to loosen logging restrictions in Oregon. Even in the last days of his administration, Trump continues to strip back as many environmental protections as he can. This time, this time, it's a change to the rules about the approval process for activities on public forest land, including logging and road building. Previously, the approval process was regulated by the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA. Passed in the 70s, NEPA is the foundation for all federal environmental policy in the United States. It's basically the Rosetta Stone for environmental laws that came after. Now, the rule change lets the Forest Service bypass NEPA. Proponents argue the change will help better maintain roads, trails, and campgrounds, but it also creates loopholes to increase commercial logging under the guise of forest restoration. In Oregon, one of the primary foci, 
will be on the national forests east of the Cascades that are at risk of wildfires. Yeah, I said foci. You could say focuses. I'm cool with that. The government might try expanded logging, thinning trees to restore the forest. Logging to thin forests to prevent wildfires is controversial. It's praised by logging companies, lobbyists, and allied lawmakers. But scientists have released research debunking those claims that thinning will solve the West's wildfire problem. Conservationists say they'll challenge the administration's rule change in court. Here's your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 1,174 new coronavirus cases yesterday. It marks the sixth day in a row when the OHA reported more than 1,000 new cases. That brings the total number of COVID cases to 66,333. Yesterday, there were six new deaths from the virus. 826 people have died from the virus in Oregon. Hospitalizations have also hit a record high with 456 people actively hospitalized for the virus. And feeding the homeless will look a little different this Thanksgiving. The Union Gospel Mission usually has a big feast every Thanksgiving, but this year, to abide by physical distancing rules, the church is changing the way they're feeding the hungry. Instead, food will be available to go from the mission or delivered to homeless camps throughout the area. The mission plans to hand out 1,000 meals Thanksgiving Day. Mutual aid groups Feed the Mass, Free Lunch Collective, and Meals on Us will be offering hundreds of to-go meals for those in need. So even if people can't sit down for Thanksgiving meal this year together, there'll still be a lot of groups providing hot meals from a safe distance. The public comments on plans to turn the Elliott State Forest into a research forest. The Elliott State Forest sprawls over 80,000 acres in southwest Washington, and for years it's been costly to maintain. So the Department of State Lands, Communications, and OSU have been working on an ambitious proposal to turn the state into a living outdoor research lab. This living laboratory would help with research on climate change, ecosystems, and sustainable forest management. There are a few major roadblocks for the project. Project would mean decoupling the forest from the Common School Fund. The Common School Fund uses the state's natural resources like lumber to pay for education. Forests are no longer a major source of funding for education, but the policy change could lose the fund hundreds of millions of dollars. Conservationists have also have some concerns about the research forest. They want the project proposal to include protections for endangered species and bans on logging and herbicides. OSU faced criticism last year for clear-cutting old-growth trees at another one of their research forests. Despite these roadblocks, conservationists, loggers, educators, and lawmakers are all excited to transform the Elliott State Forest. The Department of State Lands has extended the deadline for public comment on the project until November 29th. The State Land Board will meet on December 8th to summarize and review the comments. OSU is going to pilot a smartphone-based COVID-19 tracing app. The exposure notification system alerts users when they have been in close proximity to someone with COVID-19. Participants will be able to quickly and anonymously alert other users if they have tested positive for the virus. Importantly, the system does not track or collect users' location or personal data. Users can turn off or deactivate the app anytime they want. The system was developed by Google and Apple. It's already been used in other states, including California, Colorado, and Washington. And in partnership with the Oregon Health Authority, OSU is piloting the program with students, faculty, and staff. So far, 5,000 people have installed it. 3,800 people are currently using it. The pilot program is set to last four to six weeks. 
If it's effective at reducing the spread, the system's going to be implemented statewide. Tacoma police have booted homeless people and housing activists from a vacant school. Organizers from Tacoma Housing Now and 10 people experiencing homelessness occupied a vacant middle school on Friday. They began to clean and fix up the place, planning shelter and services on the ground floor, a quarantine area on the second floor. Throughout the day, neighbors dropped off groceries and warming supplies. Tacoma Housing Now had a mental health counselor, EMTs, a physician, lawyers, and union organizers helping with the occupation, and organizers released a set of six demands. The main one was the creation of a community land trust, including the school and any other vacant publicly owned buildings. Organizers requested that the land trust be used to permanently house the city's homeless population. The occupation occurred in response to two recent deaths from exposure in the city's homeless community. Once the Tacoma School District found out about the occupation, they called the police. Police issued an ultimatum, accept temporary shelter elsewhere or face a felony. The group decided to leave the school voluntarily. And finally, good news. The Christmas Ships Parade will go on as planned. The parade is a 66-year-old tradition here in Portland. A fleet of brightly lit and decorated ships chug down the Willamette and Columbia Rivers to bring a little joy and light to Portland and Vancouver residents. There were some worries that the parade wouldn't happen this year due to the pandemic. But the parade will set sail under clear safety protocols. Some of the parade's associated events like meet and greets and open docks will be canceled. The parade will begin on December 4th and will set sail for 15 nights thereafter. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-ray. Up next, we have an interview with Ramzi Farouki, founder of the Center for Study and Preservation of Palestine at Portland State University. Ramsey speaks with DJ Ambush about the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip, as well as Ramsey's work with the CSPP. Here are Ramsey and DJ Ambush. Joining us now is Ramsey Faruqi, founder of the Center for Study and Preservation of Palestine, based here in Portland. An American-born child of Palestinian refugees, Ramsey is an environmental engineer by trade who left the corporate world to fight against colonization worldwide. He and the CSPP promote justice for Palestine through cultural preservation, education, art, and direct action. We'll talk about the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip, as well as Ramsey's work with the CSPP. Ramsey, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're so very welcome. It's an honor. Man, I I love how we just keep crossing paths, sir. It's good to hear from you. Yeah, I know. Exactly. (laughs) It's uh... I, when I heard that you were that I was going to be speaking with you, I was very happy. I was like, "Yeah, that's what's up." Yeah, this is my guy. How have you been overall? Um, you know, in in terms, and and I've been good doing you know doing the good work, the, mm-hmm. the the necessary work on that on that front. I'm I'm doing well. You know, it's uh, uh, a way to channel a lot of the grief and a lot of the uh, uh, you know, the 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 satisfactions of what's going on around us. So yeah. pretty much I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, as best as we can be, <laughs> honestly, with, with yeah. everything going on. Um, I'm glad that uh, those within my inner circle and the people that, you know, I, I share uh, a lot of the work and efforts that we're doing right now haven't been affected, you know, by COVID. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to see that people are still out here protesting and and making their voices heard uh, I'm, yeah. I'm glad that that's become normalcy you know yeah. so yeah that's been it's been really really great uh 
hey, how's the center going? And well, then when we center, first started talking, yeah. you were, you know, you were working on putting that together. How's it going now? Yeah. Um, you know, the center is great. We've, uh, we've been, I've been able to, uh, let's see, you know, the, 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 the center was an initiative that I did. I was working by myself for mm-hmm. kind of three years, you know, behind the scenes, making connections, research. So since we last spoke, I was able to bring on, um, some directors so that I have, uh, people who can help you know uh got you know like do some work and you know feedback and uh, they all have uh very specific skills and interests in the world so it's really great to have that representation um the library is coming along nice. uh, uh you know we have since our center the center for you know the cspp represents the trinity of solidarity the mm-hmm. what i call like bringing the uh, uh bringing the flame forward, starting new fires. And to me, that means continuing black and Palestinian solidarity, which has historically been um, the greatest solidarity, the solidarity between black liberation and Palestinian liberation movement. And to me, the new fire, the starting new flame is about Palestinian and indigenous of the Americas, Native American solidarity. I feel like that's a parallel that hasn't been made. And it's Mm -hmm. an extremely important point of solidarity because of the similarities and experience. So the center represents that on all fronts. The library uh, is coming along with resources in those levels. And then also incorporated a, a subsidiary of the Land Back Press. So we are officially becoming a publisher. Uh, nice. which we will publish the CSPP journal quarterly, hopefully at some point, as well as publishing um, black and indigenous voices and Palestinian voices. So kind of a, 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 those three programs have really come. Those programs are really developing now. That's excellent. You were uh, instrumental in opening my eyes to the uh, pre-existing solidarity between uh, black and brown uh, voices across the you know, diaspora and and people of Palestine. Uh, so thank you tremendously for that. Um, and you know, for those of us that for those of anyone that's been following anything I've been doing on X-ray or on the numbers, you've heard me uh, in conversation. Uh, Ramsey is helped facilitate some of the conversations in the past with um, protesters uh, when things just really started kicking off and helped me keep in contact with those that need to have their voices heard. So, I mean, this is just another show of what what this man's been up to, you know, and actively participating and making sure people are people are heard and, 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 and they're free to, to express what's going on. So, so thank you tremendously for that, Ramsey. Seriously, it's oh, always very welcome. It's always great. It's always great to yeah. talk to you. Thank you. So it's been a really eventful year for the state of Palestine, and the United States has definitely played a role in that. Yeah. Can you give your listeners a quick update on what's going on? Oh, so I think the most important thing uh, that really um, we're we're dealing with is the um, the complicity with the administration, the current administration here, with uh, the move towards what I would call a formalizing of the occupation and annexation of the West Bank. A lot of people have reacted to, you know, the statements by the Israeli government about how, you know, that they're going to officially annex the West Bank in so many words. And while that while that outrage is, is definitely... Uh, you know, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see people posting on Instagram. I'd love to see people 
on Twitter talking about it. It's a little misinformed because this mm. is not new. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the 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 West Bank is overnight at this point over ninety percent occupied, and that's been the case that was set in play in nineteen sixty seven. So it's just an in-name acknowledgement of what has happened on the ground already. And I, I do think that's an important distinction for people to understand, that the, the, livelihood of Palestinian, uh, the livelihood of Palestinians in the West Bank has been completely dissected, divided, con- divided and conquered and ruined uh, through the occupation of the West Bank due to illegal settlements and military land grabs. But it is a big development that Israel is no longer saying, yeah, illegal settlements are illegal. Settlements are not. We're not going to necessarily do anything about them, but settlements aren't really good. And like, yeah, the West Bank is sovereign Palestinian land. No, you know they've changed the tone, mm. uh, and they're acknowledging that this is the this isn't this has always been the plan, and we're just concretizing it. Uh, in the words of many a many a uh, foreign minister, military minister, Israelis, that they were going to con- create facts on the ground via illegal settlements, you know, things that are in, wow. immovable um, despite the international rhetoric and whatever justice uh, means to people. So this year we've seen this transition of the rhetoric and the language and officially recognizing that, you know, actually settlements are a policy of the state of Israel. They're not, mm. not even a point of contention. It's actually what we do is what, is what you know, Netanyahu has said, uh, which is aligned with what's on the ground. Because, right. Um, and of course, our administration here, uh, the whole issue with the the state, you know, moving the embassy—that's not exactly recent, but that was a massive insult. And most, and once again, nothing new. I mean, right. kind of like we know that Jerusalem is considered their de facto capital, even though it's East Jerusalem was illegally annexed and was never recognized uh, because Jerusalem is important to the Palestinians and is the center of Palestinian life as well. Um, but to see this kind of bold statement of, yeah, the U.S. Embassy is going to be in Jerusalem. It's a huge slap in the face to yeah. Palestinians, considering no president has ever even tried to, to touch that. Right. And why? Why do it? It was unnecessary. It was almost like it just came out of the blue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of what he's done seems like it comes out of the blue, but it's always like this dirty, muddy, the most insulting version of blue you can find. It's like, yeah. like, what are you doing? Like, what's happening? Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts about the way, you know, these developments are portrayed in, you know, Western news and the media? Oh, jeez. I mean, this is the biggest problem. Like, this is a problem that I've grown up with, right? Mm. Like, I've, like, in the introduction, yeah, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, right? I, I like, did live, I, I lived between Kuwait and St. Louis my whole life due to wars, the original Gulf War, family following uh, opportunity because my parents were refugees and so they kind of went places mm-hmm. but i've always seen the emptiness or like the silence in western media on what's happening and i would go can you imagine being a child and then a teenager and then an adult where like i'm going and put, i'm in the middle east in the arab world i'm in the levant i'm seeing what's happening and then i like take a flight back to detroit to st louis and i'm like yo no one's talking about this wow this is at all like there, I just came out of a war zone. Like I didn't know if my flight was going to take off. We were sitting in the airport, being like, "Well, maybe this flight's going to take off, or maybe we're going to have to bunker." You know what I mean? It's right. Like, and then there's just nothing. So, um, and this is 
And then recent years, it's even worse because it's almost like, I mean, Palestine is non-existent in media anymore. Like during the Oslo Accords, it used to be there mm-hmm. every now and then. Like, did, did the media even talk about whenever 6,000 Gazans died in 08? Right. Like, whenever, no, nothing. And recently this, they were like, oh, Palestinians are angry. New York Times puts a couple of pictures. Doesn't really call it what it is. Over. You know what I mean? No one's talking about it. What's No one's talking about Gaza and the COVID situation. One mm. of my friends... One of my friends doctor in harvard public health medicine published an article a journal article peer-reviewed independently reviewed was one of the best articles that they've seen come out it was removed that was the first time that it was removed by the by the lobby the zionist lobby actually bragged on twitter that they got this article removed and all it was just about covid in gaza the silencing is unbelievable wow oh man i could not imagine i could not imagine that growing up Having that dual existence, uh, how you kept your sanity is uh, remarkable. <laughs> like seriously, yeah. Yeah. wow, angering. Okay. Yeah, but it's also it's also eye opening, and you know that uh, it's also it it, it imparted a, a duty to like do due diligence with research because you can't you can't like if that's happening there then. There's another place in the world where that's also happening. Mm-hmm. So I can't rely on the media. Absolutely. Yeah. I think so. What's most helpful uh, in situations like this is, I guess, social media and people that are on the ground and, and, yeah. and making it, you know, their point to get the word out, uh, yeah. you know, through their personal networks or YouTube or, you know, different uh, local media organizations like that, independent media organizations. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Mm. What's next for the CSPP? Well, we got some exciting things going on. Um, what's next? Let me see. So, well, I I have big plans for, you know, the carrying the flame forward and, you know, and uh, starting new fires. Like, I like that's my guiding principles every day. I think about that because I'm like, how can we do more? How can we do more? How can we show what active solidarity looks like? So in terms of, the you know, the, the black and Palestinian liberation, um, Black Liberation, Palestinian Liberation, uh, Solidarity. Um, I have a lot of plans in ter- of, of using the CSPP's platform and publishing platform to uh, publish local, like here in Portland, um, black voices that I that I think are like truly abolitionist, truly liberation oriented, mm. and are like untouched by essentially any sort of like co opting. And just being like, here's a megaphone via a book. You know what I mean? Like, right. write it, and I'm going to publish it for you. So there's a couple of my friends. You know, there's like, for instance, like, you probably know who Max Smith is, right? Oh, Max, absolutely. Yeah. Max Smith is my friend. We. It's funny. I met Max because he was a bouncer in front of the building where I used to have my little office. And, you know, we've known each other for years. Uh, and then, you know, our relationship has deepened and also uh, is also flourished in different ways due to, like, what's happening now. And Max is an amazing voice. And mm-hmm. I'm like like just being like you know he's he's my first he's going to be the first person that published kind of a style of like a essay uh, uh compiling essays and making like an anthology of like resistance here in town i think it's a very important voice to amplify and and i'm really excited about that that's um, awesome in terms of native american palestinian solidarity is a big thing that i'm in is is that i'm working on we are uh working like closely with warm springs tying warm springs to palestine I've formally applied to make Ramallah, uh, Ramallah in Palestine is the West Bank, biggest city in the West Bank, uh, and Warm Springs, sister cities. And um, 
this is something that I think is it's like on one side it was a sister city. Okay, it's an archaic it's an archaic organization idea, but I think it's actually a really beautiful idea yeah. because you you commit, especially if you're active with it. So I think it's a big step to be like, to to uh, to tie. I wouldn't tie. I've seen Palestinians tied to U.S. cities. I think that that's kind of ludicrous, as the U.S. <laughs> essentially financed the occupation of Palestine. Absolutely. Uh, I think to acknowledge the native indigenous folk and being like, you, your voice and your land and your people are who we care about allying with is really important. Uh, and developing uh, an environmental justice program through that, specifically through water justice, because that's my work with Warm Springs has always been with water because of their water situation. Mm. So I want to continue that and do a sister cisterns pro- program where we build a cistern in Palestine and a cistern in Warm Springs simultaneously, because we know that in Ramallah, when you build a cistern or when you build a cistern anywhere in the occupied territories, it's at the threat of being destroyed mm. by settlers and and uh, aided by the IDF. So uh, villages, I'd like to use the idea of building cisterns in villages, Palestinian villages, and also create like a public square uh, around the cistern, like the way that old Roman cisterns worked, mm. and to do that and like simultaneously do that back and forth. And then there's a Palestinian work. I just, just uh, connected with a... Um, Taking lead from Palestine is important to me. Uh, you know, like there's so many organizations in the in the world that are just like, it's like okay, but let's remember, like we're talking about Palestine, right? Right. So let's 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 talk. So I'm linking with an organization in Jerusalem uh, that's called Grassroots Al Quds. Al Quds is our word for Jerusalem. It's the yeah. Arabic word for Jerusalem. Which uh, so Grassroots Al Quds is this amazing organization in Jerusalem that like basically. They used to be funded by like all your big European and American like aid organizations. It's also meant that they had a big censor over their mouth and they had to do all this mm. stuff, advocacy, blah blah blah. And they ditched all that. So in a way, their organizational experience mimics my personal experience. Like I wasn't supported whenever my personal research fell apart. Okay. They were limited, and they went the way of independent grassroots crowdsourcing. And then that's kind of like how CSP has come to be. CSPP has come to be. So they, they develop history and maps and walking tours and literature, and I'm going to be their U.S. publisher to get the word out here, nice. and we're going to work together on that front. Nice. How can listeners support the CSPP in your work? I would say right now our, uh, our biggest like exterior voice, like public voice, because of corona close the center down to mm-hmm. be a by appointment only to come see the physical center and like read and all that. So you just, all of that's access to our Instagram is what I'm trying to say, which is cspp.pdx. All right. And I'm active on there. I'm always, I'm the one who controls it. We have a bunch of directors, but that's kind of like my thing is doing the, the, the CSPP account. We're building a website, but like all the updates, our current projects, what's going on, appointment scheduling all that's through the cspp uh account and like you know we take donations to keep the warm springs water run and food runs going keep donations for stuff like that and you can also support us and just see what we're up to um uh see like keep tabs on our publishing what we're about to publish and all that kind of stuff it's all happening on there until our website comes online Excellent. Well, guys, you have heard it here. Uh, that's where you can check out more information on CSPP. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, man. 
Thanks to Ramsey for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing, giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. X-Ray.